What is a little girl worth? This is the question that shook the USA gymnastics community when it was revealed that behind sports medicine doctor Larry Nasser's squeaky clean image laid a monster who'd been molesting hundreds of young girls. Rachel Denhollander was the first to publicly call out this abuse. What is a girl worth is Rachel's story, how she helped break down Larry Nasser and expose USA gymnastics. This gripping memoir is available today at RDH Story and wherever books are sold. David, last week wide receiver Antonio Brown asked for his release from the Oakland Raiders on Instagram. What I want to know is, if you were a difficult employee, and I assure everyone out there that you're not, but if you were, what social media platform would you use to ask for your release? <laughs> um... Dang. Well, I don't really use social media, so this is a tough one for me. I'm only kind of going off uh, a general um, impression about what a lot of these sites are. I don't know what TikTok does, um, different than anybody else. <laughs> I would probably go the Snapchat route because I probably wouldn't have the confidence to really follow through with the uh, with the, with, with the act with that kind of active rebellion. I'd be really upset, but then be really happy that that request was deleted from the ether uh, in the not too distant future. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it does seem like, uh, I mean, Twitter's probably the most easily to, easy to embed and to text around and spread around, so that might be the most direct, although I guess the Instagram thing, I mean, we're, we're going under the assumption that, that the uh, internet technology known as email is not going to be sufficient in this case, I guess. Um, yeah, maybe or the, like a fax, like, I remember some like Tina Brown New Yorker people, you know, quitting via fax, Yeah, like that was seen as a big big thing you really get it you have to get it in writing but also do it with urgency um maybe there's a hole in the market here maybe someone should invent a a platform an app that's solely for just like tendering your resignation or demanding that you be released (laughs) from your job is that do we do we need that (laughs) yeah I'm, i'm just imagining myself uh you know, posting it on on LinkedIn, <laughs> and and then having like twenty uh, you know specialists write me and say, "Do you need some help with your web analytics? <laughs> we'd, we'd love to partner with you in the Ringer." That would I'd, I'd get an overwhelming response, but it wouldn't it would be like, "Sorry about sorry, Brian, that you're asking for your release." It'd just be like, "We would love to partner with you. <laughs> we are the cork board of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network." Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots and lots to get to today. We'll preview Thursday's Biden versus Warren confrontation at the Democratic debates. Lana Del Rey takes on a critic. Eric Trump gives tips to young investigative reporters. I think progress, sadly, is no more. But David, I want to start off by talking to you about the saga of wide receiver Antonio Brown. Yeah, which yeah, which knocked the NFL's actual games down the content power rankings this weekend. If you're not following this, Brown, who is a truly great wide receiver, who got himself traded out of Pittsburgh last year, was mad at the NFL because they would no longer wear let him wear his preferred type of helmet. Because of that, Brown was in and out of training camp with his new team, the Oakland Raiders. Last week, the Raiders find him. And Brown allegedly called GM Mike Mayock a cracker. John Gruden, Raiders head coach, announced that despite all that, Brown was going to play in Monday night's game. But wait, that's the boring part. Because on Friday, Brown released an incredibly arty video 
that featured a taped phone conversation between him and John Gruden trying to get on the same page. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you want to be a Raider or not? I've been trying to be a Raider since day one. I've been trying to work on my ass so hard than anyone. I don't know why it's a question of me being a Raider. Like, do you guys want me to be a Raider? Was it just me, David, or did the music and the water imagery remind you of the thin red line <laughs> at all? <laughs> That's exactly where my, 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 my mind went, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. No, I really, I really Terrence did. Malick, Terrence Malick is probably happy right now. I just thought of, you know, Antonio Brown staring at the sky and pondering the existential questions of the universe. And while John Gruden was on the phone, <laughs> that was a, that was just a wild piece of content before we even get to what all this means. Amazingly yeah. well-produced as a lot of people noticed. Alejandro Norisco was the uh, producer of it. Yeah. And and seeming to send a message, though I'm not quite sure what the message was. Um, I don't I mean, I'm not exactly sure what it was either. I mean, one can read back into it that he was sort of pushing boundaries and seeing what he could seeing what it took to, you know, sort of get himself released and and but still kind of uh, improve his Q rating at the same time. I don't really know. I mean, I I can only speak from, you know, personal experience on this in in, in saying that like when that thing appeared, it was met with um, I guess bemusement is probably the most positive way to spin it in the around the you know the Ringer HQ, but I feel like it was it was you know dropped into Slack almost as a formality. It was like, well, here's this thing that we we're <laughs> obligated to follow, and here's the next chapter in it. But I'm not sure that 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 movie whatever commercial, as weird as it was, really moved the needle a lot. Um, it's just another kind of chapter in this kind of very very bizarre narrative so the movie was friday on saturday after the raiders had voided the 30 million dollars they'd guaranteed to brown brown went back to instagram and wrote i have worked my whole life to prove that the system is blind to see talent like mine now that everyone sees it they want me to conform to that same system that has failed me all those years i'm not mad at anyone i'm just asking for the freedom to prove them all wrong release me at raiders then Brown signed with the Patriots emergency podcasts ensued. <laughs> and at last check, he's still posting on Instagram, including a nineties style cartoon of him sitting on a pile of money, which I really enjoyed. Also one of Bill Belichick driving a cab. Um, Here's my big question here. What are we looking at? Are we looking at player empowerment or are we looking or, or is that, sort of doing putting too you know big a gloss on this and are we looking at something else oh man well i mean i think that this is this example i mean this applies to every moment of player empowerment but i think it's particular here is you know is that you know the player empowerment blanket is a large and all-encompassing one in in the year 2019 and I don't think anyone would say Antonio Brown is uh, a figurehead of the movement or or even anything that, that anything that he did really speaks to anything broader. 
um, except that you can't, you know, you of course view it through that lens. I, I think, I think Antonio Brown's, a, you know, like all those kind of cryptic tweets along the way said, he's his own guy. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that this is, there's, there's a lot of empowerment involved. I mean, we have, it has to be said to go back, I mean, just to, to go back to the story as you told it, the Raiders did void the $30 million of guarantees, but if he had, I mean, but they didn't, I mean, and that was a, that is a severe move clearly on their part. I don't know how many options yes. they had. They, if to, I think that they were in the position of either guaranteeing it all or, or voiding it all, but they were going to pay him on a kind of game by game basis, which is, you know, no one should have to do that, especially no one of Antonio Brown's pedigree, but it wasn't like they took away his money full stop, right? I mean, they were still, and I mean, they would argue that that money was still there for the taking, you know, if he played the games. Um, and then, you know, this is, I understand why he asked for his release. Um, there is certainly, I mean, this, I don't know if this is the first time that a player has asked for his release via adding uh, somebody on Insta, a team on Instagram. Um, but it did seem sort of momentous on that front. Um, I actually saw this thing get posted and then it, again on work slack and then didn't realize what the implications were for about 30 minutes. Cause I didn't click through. Um, and the, and the demand for releases at the very end, you know, um, I know there's a lot of people saying that he'd been kind of trying to angling to get to the Patriots or he, the Patriots were a team he wanted to go to forever. And whether or not this was a, a long con to get there, um, you know, it was an interesting story that I think people are just sort of teasing out. This does this definitely feels like one of those times where a lot of reporters had it on background that he wanted to. Get, he was trying to get to the Patriots, but they can't really report it. There's a lot of people who are mm-hmm. very confident. There's a lot of people, a lot of a lot of a lot of Twitter reporters who have who have some very confident insinuations going on right now. Yeah, um, that's a tough one, right, to prove because. I feel I feel like I feel like whenever something like this happens, we say the word collusion or some whatever whatever form of tampering. I guess it would be in this case uh, that he was a raider and that the Patriots were were part of the secret plan. But that does that ever get proven? Does ever does anybody ever figure that out for sure? Oh, they were definitely tampering with him, or somehow you know, or somehow doing that. I don't know about that. To the no no no, point, I, I, which I, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. I think it's even like the the issue of I mean of you know, definitional collusion is probably secondary in a lot of people's minds to whether or not Antonio Brown was just literally trying to get himself cut so that he could go to the Patriots, which is, I don't think there's anything wrong with that in the rule book or by the rule book, but that I think that matters more to fans. To the empowerment point, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with everything you just said. I would, I would, I guess, add this because I think sometimes when we think about movements, we're looking for people you know, kind of an idealized person who is at the front of the movement. Like who is the, you know, name, name, name Muhammad Ali, somebody from, from, from the past in sports where we look at them and say, this person started something, this person changed things. I think when we think of player empowerment, there are people who are, you know, sort of changing the way the power structures are in the league. And then there are people who are using that power to do whatever they want. Right. So if you say Antonio Brown is being a jerk, he is empowered to be a jerk. (laughs) right the new the new system we have in the nfl is you can do all this stuff and just get out of your contract and say i don't want to play for the raiders anymore no thanks i don't i just don't want to do this anymore and i'm going to go play somewhere else so it's sort of like i think i think to understand all these things it's actually more complex right it's about there's all these trickle down effects 
And if we can trace a lot of this to what happens, what has happened in the NBA over the last couple of years, where the players have taken over not only some of the power within the league to move, to be traded, to, to get out of contracts, that kind of stuff, but the power to dictate to the media of when, of how they're going to be covered and when they're going to be covered. I mean, to me, Antonio Brown is doing a version of that. Again, it doesn't mean it's like moral. It has this kind of moral clarity that there is some bigger principle involved other than just what he wants to do and what he feels like doing on, on this particular week. Right. But to me, it's of a piece of that, you know, it's not unrelated to that. Uh, it's somewhere in that. And the fact that he is playing for the Patriots today, rather than the Raiders tells me that like the movement has happened and yeah. he is a beneficiary of. It. Sure. Sure. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to imagine this happening 10 years ago for any number of reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that just it's certainly part of this movement as, you know, defined in a broad way. Um, but, you know, his ability to. To, you know, have his own platform, his, his, his ability mm-hmm. to. um you know, to make a make any point at all publicly. I mean, the, 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 he said he was trying to make the point that he was people like him were underappreciated. Uh, who knows if that point was made, but he had the voice to say it in a way that you know millions and millions of people were paying attention to. Um, someone just sent me um, a an excerpt from this morning's edition of ESPN's Get Up, in which Mike Greenberg said. What we have just, in reference to Antonio Brown, what we have just witnessed is the most unprofessional act that I can ever remember seeing in professional sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems a little bit over the top, and I guess that's the sort of rubric of the show. Um, but I mean, I guess anytime we're talking about player empowerment, you have words like professionalism that are bandied about as the sort of antithesis or the antithetical. Um, I'm not sure that any of those things are going to work together neatly when we look back in a couple of years at, at all at all the stuff that's gone on. Um, mm-hmm. But well, part of empower, part of empowerment, as I was saying, right, is it empowers you to do what you want, uh-huh. and what you want may not be quote unquote professional. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, but I think it also it's, redefines what professional is, right? I mean, this is the profession of football, and the profession of football. I mean, as far as we know, no rules were broken, and you know. No, I mean, as as unique as the situation was, it does come, it does spring forth from a recent history of events that, that I mean, that nothing, I don't think a lot of new ground was broken here. Um, mm-hmm. This wasn't professional in the, nothing to do with professional in the, you know, traditional sense, but this is, you know, this is the, this is the business now. And um, the Raiders were well within their rights to, to, you know, tear up his contract basically. And um, they were also well within their rights to, uh, keep them or cut them and they decided after everything they'd been through that a player with that sort of platform was not something they wanted to be dealing with week in and week out i mean that was their decision so um you know i'm not sure that that was entirely professional either but by some archaic standard but um you know that's what happened it's a bit it was a crazy story and and just from a from a purely media perspective we talk about this all the time but there's nothing like a story like this that breaks on the weekend, a story that not only gets everybody's hackles up because of the content of the of the story, 
but also gets all gets all the journalist hackles up because they're forced to work on a Saturday they weren't planning to. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean that as yes. a night. Like we all we all felt that. I mean, I was literally in a car driving to Pennsylvania with a laptop and personal hotspot open, trying to like you know colorize black and white photos of Antonio Brown's face. Which, by the way, for as an art director, I have to say it. He is. There was way Antonio Brown's the amount of news he made this offseason compared to the number of photos of him ex- that existed in a Raiders uniform was that balance was so off. And I feel really <laughs> it was one of the most unfair things as an art director that could possibly happen. So uh, there's hackles up over over in the art department, too. But um, but yeah, I mean, we all had to work and we didn't expect to. And this is, uh, you know, Antonio Brown. I mean, there, I don't know. I mean, I was I was not on the Antonio Brown bandwagon at any point in this offseason, but now I'm just sort of like this story has just sort of become worth everything that we've gone through. It's just such an amazing well, story. I don't even know well, what it means. A, that's the thing is is when when journalists start to get mad at these guys, they have to remember that they are being rewarded with content. Yeah, Antonio Brown is going to be a get up story, whether Greeny is mad at him or not, day after day after day throughout the season. If he comes, if he goes out next week for the Patriots, he didn't play this week. But if he goes and plays for the Patriots next week and tears it up, that is going to be a huge story. If he posts crazy stuff on Instagram about Bill Bill Belichick, that's going to be a crazy story. Um, so that's really amazing. Another good for a media podcast action in the NFL, David. Mm. New Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson was great. Seventeen oh, of yeah. twenty, three hundred twenty-four yards and five touchdowns. Jackson had been the subject of a billion, but can he play quarterback pieces? And in the reaction to his big day, you saw, what did you call it in the email? The old takes exposed ization of the sports media. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was just weird that like the, I heard more, listen, when that game was going on, there was nobody who was watching Sunday ticket or, you know, tweeting with or t- texting with their friends about football. The only, I mean, the number one topic of conversation across the board was Lamar Jackson just erupting, right? I mean, he was, there's a brilliant piece on the ringer.com uh, by Tyler Tynes that was just beautifully timed to come out on Saturday before the big game uh, and before he, he just went off. Uh, but there's uh, so many people. I mean, this is all people were paying attention to, but the, weirdly the post-mortem seems to be that the only thing people want to talk about is him proving everybody wrong. Um, and, and all the... All the you know people that thought he should be a wide receiver or a running back, um, it's weird because everybody seems to want to really reference all of these these freezing cold takes or whatever, but no one's really referencing it. And there's not a lot of not a lot of uh, not a lot of linking going on in, in all these in in, in calling out the. <laughs> I mean, listen, there were there were he he talked about it he called himself a running back. He knows that there were people that in, that that, in, that told him either directly or indirectly that that he should maybe be a running back or a wide receiver in the pros. He was definitely asked to work out as a wide receiver at the combine and declined, I believe. But yep. and there was the Bill Polian on the Bill Polian one. Yeah, Bill Polian was the big one. I'm not sure how much stock we should put in Bill Polian, but a lot of people do, so okay. I mean those people were definitely out there, but I just mean as a journalistic exercise, I, I shouldn't some of these articles have to name uh, the people that they're that they're addressing and not just refer vaguely to doubters mm-hmm. and haters. I mean that doesn't <laughs> it seems like it's a little bit lacking in in the coverage. As we often say on this podcast, if you are taking on the media, you're undefeated yeah. because you will always beat the media with no link. Right? right. That is that is it. I mean, I'm looking at some of the headlines here. Lamar Jackson destroys his critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lamar Jackson answers his critics uh, and on and on. 
who are the critics? Yeah. Is it just one guy? And also, by the way, the Polian thing reminds me of the Greeny thing because somebody has to have that opinion. Yeah. And then that person becomes this useful, just pinata for everybody else. Like, as you said, you can look at Antonio Brown and be like, man, I have complex feelings about this. I don't know yeah. if I like this or I, or, I, or I, you know, I recognize his right to do this, but I don't love, you know, this moment or this moment. But everybody then can go to Greeny. and was like, oh, look at Greeny. He's overreacting. That just simplifies things so much. Or you can yes. look at Bill Polian. I mean, you can be a football writer and have doubts about whether Lamar Jackson is going to be a great quarterback or not. That's okay. <laughs> that is, you know, I understand some of this is racially freighted and all that stuff. And I, I, I am, if that's happening, I am, I'm, I'm with you. Let's go, let's go wreck shop on whoever's having that take, but it's okay to think that, but then you see Bill Polian. Oh, look at that. Let's go get that guy. It really clears things up. Doesn't it? It does. It, do, it, it definitely does do that. But um, I don't want to get lost in this. Lamar Jackson had just an all-time great day. Um, Amazing. Fantasy owners everywhere are just like dancing in the streets right now, and and <laughs> you know, mortgaging their houses and everything else. And the and the, the and the and you know, he was. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, so I have a warm, I have a place in my heart for for Lamar even before this happened. But. Um, Man, he looks. You good. were with him the whole time, not like that old Bill Polian. No. Uh, finally, David, R.I.P. at least temporarily to the media's obsession with the Cleveland Browns. Uh, <laughs> if you're not a football person, the Browns are a uniquely terrible franchise. They got a quarterback though in Baker Mayfield. They showed a spark last year. The media has gone all in, and I mean all in. Mayfield was in GQ. CBS's opening game with Jim Nance and Tony Romo was Titans at Browns, which on paper anyway sounds like an incredibly unsexy matchup on sunday the browns lost 43 to 13 so um you know if you cast your television bets with the browns you may want to uh to uh to re recalibrate gonna, gonna be a weird year all right david time for the overworked twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media twitter made it at exactly the same time send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received the first nominee comes from our friend Cal O'Boyle. Did you see Scarlett Johansson and Jeremy Renner both light themselves on fire last week? <laughs> yeah. jo- Johansson defended Woody Allen and said she believed him uh, in regard to his charges of sexual assault. Renner shut down his ridiculous app after it was overrun by trolls and pranksters. <laughs> It was an overworked Twitter joke to write the scene in Endgame where Renner and Johansson wrestle to be the one that throws themselves off a cliff seems to be happening in real life this week. Anyway, thanks to Cal for that one. (laughs) We're not done, David, with Boris Johnson, whose government suffered yet another resignation. This time it's Cabinet Secretary Amber Rudd. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write Brexit was always a disaster and now it's rudderless. That's from Tony Groves. Who has been on, by the way, been on four podcasts in a row. Uh, he's doing an end zone dance on Twitter, and you know what? He deserves it. Wow. Tip of the cap to you, sir. Thank nice you job. for your great work. Also, we also got some great Boris pun headlines sent to us from the UK Sun. Floppy Johnson can't get an election. Yeah. Fantastic work. That had a moment on Twitter. Also, even the Washington Post, which will never be confused with private eye. Had the headline, The Great British Breakoff. Ooh. All right. Mm. As almost a David guesses the strain pun headline. Finally, David, we cannot get away from this segment without some Antonio Brown tweets. 
Here they are. Number one, I guess Antonio Brown got cold feet. Let's see if he gets a cryotherapy. <laughs> you know, you just look it up. If you don't get it. Another one that made the rounds this week. I'd like pictures, to nominate. Though. Oh yeah, oh, God. Another one that made the rounds. I'd like to nominate Steelers coach Mike Tomlin for the Nobel Peace Prize. I guess because <laughs> he had a relatively peaceful time with with Brown over there. And finally, from ESPN's Tim Kuhn, no surprise that Brown's decline really accelerated when he pivoted to video. <laughs> Thanks to Nathan Heitschill, Jack Goldman, Affordable ZJ, wow. Isaac Chips. Joel Sweat, Love, and Ray. If you compared a team-hopping wide receiver to our continuing journalistic nightmare, congrats. <laughs> you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And I think we should do a quick Democratic debate preview, which will also serve as a self-plug. You can hear us Thursday night with an instant reaction pod right after the debate concludes. It is going to be taking place in the great state of Texas at Texas Southern University in Houston. It's three hours long, 8 to 11 Eastern. On ABC and Univision, the control plus V take, my friend, is to look forward to Elizabeth Warren, Warren excuse me, tearing into Joe Biden mm. and whether Biden has what it takes to stand up to that. I'm interested in that. But now that Warren has so much momentum, I'm also really interested in what it's going to look like when Warren is challenged. Yeah, because I'm not sure we've seen that yet. And I think it's going to be really interesting. And tell me if you agree to see her challenge not just on policy, but on electability. Yeah. Because I yeah. think if you gave the truth serum to a bunch of Democrats right now, they say, I love Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I'm worried she can't win. Maybe she can't win because of bullshit misogyny, maybe because Trump and the Native American, whatever it is. That's what they're worried about. Yeah. And I'd love to see her challenged on that and see what she would say. It's a little bit ephemeral, but I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that for all of, you know, I mean, this is going to be, you know, Bernie and Biden and Warren are sort of the three front runners right here. But but Warren's, you know, Warren's uh, polling trajectory. I mean, I'm no Nate Silver over here, but but Warren's trajectory seems to be the only one that matters at all. I mean, the only one that has any significance. Bernie and Biden have sort of been holding serve in their very in their in slightly different ways. And, you know, there are definitely the, the Kamala Harris and, and, and you know, the, the the contingent just below that where people have you know, percentage wise, maybe jumped up a good bit, but I don't know that there's any, um, I don't know any of that movement really amounts to more than statistical noise at this point. Um, you know, Warren is, she's not the front runner, but you're right. She's the, she is the sort of, she's the active figure in this, you know I mean? She's, she's rising mm -hmm. in the poll. She's gaining, she's, um, you know, on a path, you know, for better or for worse. And I think that, that, you're right. I mean, she does have a lot of she does have a lot to overcome. And I and I think that, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different factors and you and you mentioned them a lot. I'm not exactly sure what is going to win people over or what's going to settle that settle that question for people. But, you know, I think going toe to toe with Joe Biden, going toe to toe with Bernie Sanders, you know, going toe to toe with everybody else on the stage who's going to be taking swings at her. Because, like I just said, it feels like Bernie and, and, and Biden's numbers are, are, you know, pretty established. Certainly, they're going to go down if one of them is to lose the nomination, if, some, if, if either of them is to not win. But I think that, that, you know, I think that Elizabeth Warren is a sort of more, more a juicier target for a lot of people lower down on the, in the polling. So, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. that there's, I think she's going to get the opportunity. 
to to fight. You know, she's going to get the opportunity to whatever she wants to do up there. I think I think that she'll be given the time and the space to do it. Um, and I think that you know, uh, Biden certainly has a a specific performance. His campaign has a performance in mind that they would like to see. But one wonders if one yeah you know, one wonders if it's not if less is more is not part of that game plan you know I mean because I I'm not sure that that from what we've seen of late I'm not I don't I don't know that that you know lengthy exposition is really the move that they want to be hedging towards <laughs> right now so I, yeah, I mean I don't, a, not neither lengthy nor exposition yeah I did I, so all of that is to say that, and, and you know the, I think the I think the Sanders Warren um, dynamic is going to be really interesting. Uh, at least in the you know in, in our in our post game show for sure we're going to discuss that. But um, all that's to say is, is that I think Warren's going to be you know going to have a lot. Warren will be in the spotlight on Thursday night, so it'll it'll be interesting to see if she gets the op- if she if she takes advantage of that opportunity. There is still this reservoir dogs quality this whole thing because there are just so many candidates, and as you yeah. say, we can't you can't, it's not it's not Warren versus Biden, front runner centrist versus lefty insurgent. It's not that yet, but, but that's certainly going to be, that's certainly going to be a lot of what people are ex- excited to see because they have been on the same stage. And I totally agree with you. I think she is the candidate who's moving, but she's also the candidate who really hasn't had to answer a lot of tough questions lately because she took on so much water at the beginning of the campaign, mostly because of the native American thing. Yeah. And there was this whole moment where everybody gasped and went, oh my gosh, she can't win. This is a fatal problem for her in this campaign. Trump was attacking her. It just and even Democrats were just mm-hmm. there's just no way. And then she sort of has been on this quiet trajectory where she's just been showing off policy acumen. I think she's the best debater on the Democratic stage by far. I think she's the most facile debater. She can she has the best command of she knows what she believes, unlike a lot of candidates on that stage. Yeah. Um, and she can just debate anybody, um, you know, run circles around anybody in that forum. I would like to see her electability, by the way, is not a bad question. I know Joe Biden wants to make that the only question. It's not even certain that he's the most electable guy against Trump. But are you going to win the general election? Seems like a decent question. Yeah. And how are you going to win it? That's not that's not stupid, right? That's not just horse race. That's Democratic voters have an interest in that. But um, but that will be fascinating. And I just like the idea, too, that she's going to be challenged not by the John Delaney's of the world who were just kind of like shoved into the wrestling ring like those guys used to wrestle on Thursday nights against the famous wrestlers and get squashed in three (laughs) seconds. I mean, what if, you know, Kamala Harris is in there, right? Biden's in there. Bernie, you know, now you've got, it feels like there's just legitimate opponents and people that are at least, you know, in her zip code on the debate stage. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I mean, I think we will, I mean, I think the moderators, the format of the debate, uh, I think is going to be really significant whether or not they, depending on how much time they give to everybody whose name we did not just mention. Um, but I, but I, but I think that, you know, we st- we stand to learn a whole lot. We stand to learn a whole lot. And I think that, um, you know, there will be, I think regardless of how it goes, I feel like we will be talking about, or the, the, the media will be discussing this as a referendum on the Warren campaign in the, in the aftermath of the debate. Someone who will not be overstepping their time limit segue. His billionaire coffee guy, Howard Schultz. Yeah. He had toyed with running as an independent and or Democrat killer in this election. But on Friday, he wrote on his website, not enough people today are willing to consider backing an independent candidate 
because they fear doing so might lead to reelecting a uniquely dangerous incumbent president. Congrats to Howard Schultz for belatedly attaining self-awareness. What? Wait, that, that is the most self-aware thing he has ever said. I didn't even see that statement until you just read it. That because all I read was people saying that he was that he was dropping out because he was worried that he might swing the election towards Trump. He actually said something very different than that, which is that the, he he was like preemptively blaming the electorate for swinging the election towards Trump if he ran. <laughs> it wasn't that yeah, he, was, he hit. It wasn't that he was like, oh, my, me running might achieve the, the you know a, a conclusion that's the opposite of what I what I desire. It was right. I mean that's that's the self aware answer. His was like people aren't willing to consider me uh, as a viable candidate because they're so worried about Trump getting reelected. I don't know. Well, anyway, I guess that's sort of self aware. It, it it was a le- it was a big word salad of a, of a letter that had been kind of assembled from a hundred different candidate dropout speeches because it was this whole thing of like. You know, my time is better spent elsewhere. And, you know, I, 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 I see I saw a path in the unprecedented frustration of today's electorate. I mean, it is really something that I do not want to quote at all. Mm-hmm. But um, but that is it. I mean, do we think this was the worst presidential campaign of the cycle? Eric Swalwell's was not good, <laughs> but I feel Schultz may have done the least with most as in most money. Yeah, that might be true. I mean, I, I think I think that. I mean, Schultz is just like a uniquely um, exasperating, if not terrifying, candidacy um, for, you know, most of the, you know, coastal (laughs) liberals that I think you and I encounter on a fairly regular basis because he was so, he had such a lack of self-awareness, not the, not the, the, I mean, the fact that he was teasing uh, an independent campaign before he had even like, you know, left the, the, the democratic race. Um, which angered lots of people, but even pre, I mean, before that, it, the the fact that he was running, like so, like these, like he's not the only one, but the fact that he that he could have so much money and so much access and still be running such a wrongheaded campaign for 2019, um, it just he he it lent itself to parody, right? That he was too rich and removed from reality to realize that he was what he was doing was was idiotic. He uh, his argument, of course, was that Democrats had moved too far left which was an argument others were making kind of more tacitly, including Biden. Um, also, I think a problem for him is that billionaire Tom Steyer sort of took over the billionaire who's wasting his money lane. Mm-hmm. CNN notes that uh, Schultz had three back surgeries and was recovering all summer. So there was a there was a physical element as well. And Politico's Jake Sherman tweeted, real news, Howard Schultz was not running for president. He hadn't held an event in months. He no longer had staff. So I guess it's a good question to ask. Which campaign existed less, Howard Schultz's or Wayne Messam's? Should we do? Should we do a Wayne Messam segment? Are you as fascinated by him as I am, <laughs> Mayor of Miramar, Florida, who is kind of, sort of, somehow running for president, but really not? Uh, I am certainly not as fascinated as you seem to be. We, we, I'm, I'm all about doing a segment, though. All right, we're gonna do it next week, David. I want to talk about Lana Del Rey, though. She has a new album out. Yes. It's called Norman fucking Rockwell. What a great title. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read Lindsay Zolads' excellent review oh, so at TheRinger.com. Another critic who weighed in, though, was Ann Powers, who had a long essay on NPR's website. Lana Del Rey shot back on Twitter. Here's a little side note on your piece. I don't even relate to one observation you made about the music. There's nothing uncooked about me. To write about me is nothing like it is to be with me. Never had a persona, never needed one, never will. Del Rey adds, so don't call yourself a fan like you did in the article and don't count your editor one either. 
Now, my first reaction was no. that this was a Streisand effect moment almost worthy of Brett Stevens. You don't like the review? Okay, why don't you tweet it out so everyone will read the review? Yeah. Uh, I saw Daily Telegraph critic Neil McCormick says, I have to thank Lana Del Rey for introducing me to the superb critical writing of Ann Powers. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. The uh, My other reaction, though, was, and tell me what you think of this, is this to me was 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 healthy and happy because here's a music critic doing what a music critic does. She's doing her thing. She's saying exactly what she wants. And then the artist gets mad. And that's not a, I know that's like a trending topic on Twitter, but that's not a controversy. That's healthy. That's what should happen. That's, that's, that's kind of what journalism and and reviewing should be. And I don't know about you, but there's so much fanboy fangirlization going on of culture writing right now where the writer and whoever the artist is, whether they're a movie director, TV person, whatever, seem to be moving in sync. It seems to all be this kind of appreciation, publicity apparatus. And I think that that's fine for me to a point, but yeah. it was almost refreshing because this just felt like Pauline Kale reviewing a movie and the director getting mad. And you're like, great, great. That's, that's, that's okay. That's nice. That that's what it should be. Anyway, that was my takeaway. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it was, a, I think that, um, you know, I, I speak as someone who's listened to all of about three quarters of a song from this album, uh, and I'm no uh, expert music critic or a particular fan of Lana Del Rey. Although um, she's definitely that has like the the whatever vague music championship belt is awarded at the Ringer dot com uh, at this <laughs> at this moment in time. Uh, I I I read Lindsay's piece, loved it. Um, Lindsay actually directed me to this piece, and uh, I thought it was really, I thought it was an incredible piece too. I thought that even more than just like, I mean, maybe this is, maybe I'm, I don't give, you know, readers enough credit. Maybe I'm not, maybe it's, this is more of a personal statement, but I think more than anything else, Lana Del Rey alerted me to the fact that this review should be read as negative. I, I didn't even, I, I didn't think it was a particularly negative piece or a particular heart, particularly, you know, like difficult piece. It, it all made a lot of sense to me, just understanding who, vaguely who she is in the, in the music, the pop culture landscape. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think that you're right. I think that, I think that her reaction to it was a sort of empowering movement. I mean, moment for criticism. I mean, it, it, uh, it, it um it it showed that there that you know, especially if you read the piece that you can be deeply thoughtful about an album about a, a musician about um music and this current this exact moment in time and um and yeah I mean it doesn't have to be not everything has to be a sort of a sort of love letter and I don't mean that again like you said it's this is not dragging anybody else I think some of the best writing that we have on the internet is 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 it comes from that sort of fan's perspective but um but yeah I thought I thought it was uh it's a very interesting moment and I and, it, and one has to feel like a very deliberate I mean a, a very deliberate choice for Lana Del Rey and and a sort of and a very interesting one so I, I'm not I'm not exactly sure what she was trying to do um but yeah I mean Yay, music criticism. Let's get to it. Yeah, and, and that's another part of this, right? Music criticism is so has been so degraded, not because the critics are bad, but because the world has changed so much. And yeah. it's probably, I think we both agree, been further degraded than, certainly than TV criticism, which now seems like, the, or food criticism, which seems like now like the two best jobs in journalism. Sure. But certainly more than movie criticism, 
which has had its own kind of existential what the hell are we doing here moments over the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. But music, just because of the way the industry's changed and everything. And I do like what you said about the Ann Powers piece, because you're right. It wasn't like, you know, Ann Powers, you know, music, music critic shreds Lana Del Rey and Lana Del Rey snaps back. It was music critic has a complicated, interesting reaction to Lana Del Rey. Mm -hmm. And Lana Del Rey says, I don't think you get me. I don't think you understand me. I think you think you understand me, but you don't. That again, that's fine. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah. That's good. I like that. I like that kind of reaction. Um, it just feels um it feels somehow more interesting. But uh anyway, worth checking out and certainly read Lindsay's piece on the ringer. David, I have a segment here called Eric Trump's reporting tips for young journalists. <laughs> the president's other oh, son. I like the story. Yeah, he really thought he had something on Thursday when he tweeted an email that Washington Post reporter David Farenthold had sent out to a member of the Trump organization. Eric Trump tagged Jeff Bezos in his tweet, which is pretty funny. Here's what Farenthold actually wrote to a member of the Trump organization. I'm very sorry to bother. I'm a reporter for the Washington Post, and I cover the Trump organization as a business. As a part of that, I try to make sure every Trump org employee has my contact information. You know the company so much better than I ever could. I'd like your help to make sure I don't miss anything important. If you ever want to get in touch with me, I'd be glad to talk on background, dot, dot, dot. All my contact information is below, including details for how to reach me on encrypted apps. Also, if you ever want to send me documents anonymously, you can do it online at this site or just do it the old-fashioned way. Send a no-return address package to the street address below. Thanks very much for your time. David Fahrenheit. Um, I hate it when people try to teach journalism on Twitter. You know that that's what journalists of included. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't no. Yo, only it's only journalists. Don't don't teach me. Right. I skipped all the journalism classes for I just please don't teach. But I, I kind of want to make an exception for Eric Trump, <laughs> who can be an associate professor of journalism um, in my imaginary school any day, because what a great free lesson for investigative reporters. Right. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I mean, you look at this. I love this because. Not only is Fahrenheit laying it out there, I love the flattery in here. You know this. You know the company so much better than I ever could. Yeah, I'd like your help to make sure I don't miss anything important. That's just pure investigative reporter ease, right there. You know, just to just to you know, you you know, you functionary in the Trump organization know what I, you you know this so well. So if you just drop me that encrypted email, I'm sure we could make sure I get all the facts right. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I guarantee that this email will be cut and pasted a lot by uh, aspiring in, in, investigative journalists. Um, mm -hmm. I, I thought that it's uh, you're right. It's simplicity and it's um, it's a uh, um, complimentary tone, I think, uh, is, is very instructive. Um, but it did. It reminded me a little bit of like journalist, which was a thing in the now distant past. Uh, God. Th yeah, I mean, there. I mean, there's other things that I that I'm not that aren't springing to mind immediately. But, the, uh, you know, the the journalist under fire um, motif is it it has its has its moorings in reality, and um, and this is this just feels like one of those things where like you tweet the thing out with the implication that there is something much more devious in what you're attaching than than what really exists, and you know a lot of people are going to see that tweet and just be like, yeah. Yeah, those journalists, look at them breaking all those journalistic rules, trying to take down the president illicitly. Um, I don't think this was I don't think this was 
nearly the nearly the you know open and shut case that that uh, Eric Trump thought it was, or that you know some of those previous examples might have been. But um, you know, I'm sure he got I'm sure he got some retweets out of it. I'm sure he got some follows. Maybe that's all he really wanted. This is the nicest David Fahrenheit we'll ever we'll ever seen. Yeah, he's like, I mean, that, that guy's a killer, right? Yeah, he's. he's like, Whoa, he sounds like a sounds like a nice man here. <laughs> no, and I and I think I think the bigger lesson here is in the Trump Fox News fantasy world where journalists are forming a fifth column against everything that's holy and pure in the United States. Yeah, if you just actually showed what they did, and if you actually sent their emails around, people would be alternately one convinced that journalists aren't evil or two just bored out of their minds probably two because it's really it's really, there's really there's really not that much nefariousness going on it's really just a lot of people that are pretty boring doing a lot of good work that's all it is yeah. it's like that new york times that's what the new york times tried to do with the showtime doc was just like what if we just showed journalists working yep and sort of demystify all this and 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 you get emails like this. And by the way, you and I haven't done anything interesting today. We worked hard all day, but I doubt we did anything that's worth, you know, sending out as an email or putting on a video. Yeah. It's just it's it's not that interesting. It really isn't. And I guess if that accidentally convinces the public and, you know, bully for bully for Eric Trump. All right, David, think progress. Now sadly added to the list of stuff that used to exist and no longer exists and has cost a bunch of journalists or jobs do you want to update us a little bit on what happened and and what we should think about that whole situation do i uh, yeah i mean listen think progress shut down which is a sad thing i think for liberal journalism um think progress was founded in 2007 as uh this i think there's a quote from the daily beast an editorial an editorially independent project of the democratic party think tank center for american progress it has run a deficit for some time. There's a lot of vagaries about that, but um, but the the beast had previously reported that they were looking at a three million dollar uh, gap between revenues and expenses in 2019 alone. And then there is this conspicuous aside of which three hundred fifty thousand dollars had come via shortfall in ad revenue. So there were um, three three uh, over three and a half million or two and a half million dollars that were uh, not accounted for that were never. Uh, never thought to be covered by ads, right? I mean, so this is just donation money and, and anything else or just, uh, you know, running an enormous budget. Um, Judd Legume, who founded the site uh, and then left last year to start a newsletter. I, mean, I guess he he initially, he started the whole enterprise as a newsletter before it was picked up by CAP, but uh, left to start another newsletter called Popular Information, said that uh, mm-hmm. Think Progress, quote, wasn't built to be a profit center. So he wasn't surprised they couldn't find someone else to, to back it. I mean, they, they were looking for a new publisher, a new benefactor, a new angel investor um, to kind of keep the site going, and they could not find anyone. Um, you know, this isn't the first uh, web, the first website, the first, you know, established URL um, that we've seen in, in recent years that hasn't been able to find someone to, you know, who wanted to invest. I don't know if that means that there's, um, you know, that that you get a better return on your investment by creating a new property, or if if there are other reasons why this one didn't work, um, you know, it is uh, this was a this was a proudly progressive website, um, and the beast uh, in in the beast piece about it, um, they say that there was a sense that the election of Donald Trump in 2016 would spark a boomlet, 
um, for the site. But it opened the piece, and 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 everything you read about this, uh, read about Think Progress, would constantly say that the site um, rose to prominence in the shadow of the Bush administration and helped define progressivism during the Obama years. It made me think about the you know the story we covered not long ago about Breitbart's traffic dropping off, and I kind of wonder if like. Uh, you know, if there's an expiration date on opposition media, you know, do you just get one or two presidential cycles? And then, you know, there's not, um, you know, people find different websites to go to. I don't know. What's your take on this whole thing? Well, I mean, I guess I was, it was one of those, one of those that did this have to happen. And I saw a lot of people point this out on Twitter that Tom Steyer was until August, a board member at the Center for American Progress. And a lot of people pointed out, wait a second. What if instead of dumping $100 million into a presidential run that's probably going to be useless and worthless, what if he just bought Think Progress? What if he just made up the $3 million shortfall? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a good idea? Yeah, one Because to, to some extent, sites like this and you know its precursors, which is journals like The New Republic and The Weekly Standard, depend on a patron. Right? Sure. It's going to be hard for them to make money. It's going to be somebody who decides this is important enough that I want to lose money, a little bit of money on this every month and every year. Mm-hmm. So why is there really not a, a liberal patron out there who thinks this is important and all these people that kind of, that kind of surprises me. Yeah. And there's just so much anti-Trump money floating around in the world right now that it's hard to believe that a site like that, that did a ton of great work wouldn't have somebody who would just you know sort of take some version of that site and say let's do it it's just really weird it, it is it, that is very strange when you put it that way i mean i wonder if these people i mean the, the potential investors the potential donors the tom styers of the world are constantly being courted for their money right i mean and, and one and, and maybe maybe it's the case that you just hear so many you just have so many presentations about the most the most current the most modern the most technologically sophisticated way to spend your money to positively affect the world in the way that you think it should be affected, you know, maybe someone come someone coming along and saying like, "Do you want to buy a blog?" doesn't have a whole lot of you know urgency to it, you know. I mean, despite all mm-hmm. the wonderful things that this website has done over the years, um, yeah, it's not as satisfying as do you want to start an impeachment drive, or do you want to give you know join the Yang Gang or something like that? I think mm-hmm. because it just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like a, it it doesn't seem like advocacy in the same way. It doesn't seem like it has the same emotional payoff but you know what it may be better in the long run mm-hmm. than throwing money at at a presidential campaign or at something that's just not going to do anything yeah um it's interesting you're right i mean i guess it's the problem the hard thing about a thing like that is is explaining it to people that's why i think you need the rich patron who's like oh i like i like him i know I like exactly what it is or what it or what it could be and, I, and i'm behind that yeah i I agree. I agree. I, one of the things that, that sort of, you know, I, I, I enjoyed when I was reading, you know, all the various postmortems about Think Progress I actually ended up on, I think, on their on their Wikipedia page where it said in its early years, Think Progress included a daily newsletter that inclu- included a, a recap analysis of major political news and the blog Wonk Room, which was published until 2011. Um before being subsumed into the main site, I believe. But there, there's a nice like history of blogging or history of like web publication that like this is a, that you know you can kind of trace through Think Progress. There's also a lot of attention mm-hmm. given to its notable alum, alumni uh, who are almost uh, too numerous to mention. I mean, there's a lot of really significant writers who came out who who came out of that site. Definitely. But 
but you know, there's all, but there, but this is, but it it was such a sort of, it it existed at such a seminal moment, not just for progressive politics, but for like writing on the internet. That part of it, I think, was just like they were, uh, they were hiring in like the mid two thousands in Washington D.C. when people, when like good, brilliant people were flocking there to become a part of the new media establishment. You know, so a lot of people sort totally. of. A lot of people, for a lot of people, that was their first great job. You know, that was the first opportunity they were given. And, um, and you know, the, the site will, uh, you know, always be significant because of what it's done in the past. It does feel like a moment in blogospheric time when you name part of your site Wonk Room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we laugh, but I mean, at the time, that made perfect sense. Like, yeah, Wonk Room. I mean, so much time That's was where spent. You read some policy writing. Yeah. yeah. So, so much time was spent, like, designating the subsections, right? I mean, of like, na- like, like if you were a writer for a site, the best like the best thing that could happen to you was to be given your own sub blog on the site, right? I mean, and and, la- and later those things became verticals, which are now which now don't really exist widely anymore. It's more about identity, you know. And the, I mean, in, except in the biggest of publications, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it, it's definitely a moment in time. All right, let's do David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. <sighs> I was gonna say we're about a half second late, David, with that uh, moan. Friday's headline was Fairway to Heaven. And as <laughs> usual, listeners are way better and smarter than we are about, it, the, about all this headline stuff. Jason Hodgert, and what a, with a side of pod, excuse me, said the headline should have been Mind If I Pray Through. Mind If I Pray Through. That is, that is good stuff and, and probably better than actually Fairway to Heaven. Today's headline, David, comes from Ryan Hand. It's from The Guardian. A uh, story by Carrie Paul, and I think I can just read you the somewhat baffling subheadline. Oh no! And let you do the rest of the work. All right, here it is. I cleaned it up slightly, but but uh, but here goes. Judge finds that a full body banana costume sold by an Arizona company. You're with me so far. A full body banana costume sold by an Arizona company may be too similar to one originally sold by a New Jersey costumer. Okay. Let me just, let me just simplify that. Cause that's, that's a little wild judge finds that a full body banana costume sold by one company may be too similar to one sold by another company. This is all happening. It's Wait, this is in the case. guardian. Just to be clear, is there, is there a British angle to this that I'm missing? Or is this just happened to be in the guardian? <laughs> well, it, it seemed to be a San Francisco based correspondent. Okay. Paul. Okay. You know, I, I assume this was this appeared elsewhere and we are doing uh, ye old aggregation of funny story thing. Um, but anyway, David, what is the Guardian strained pun headline? Um, ben, uh, banana. I don't know why I immediately went to one banana, two banana, which is not um, it's a one potato thing, but it's the banana <laughs> banana split song. I think it was one banana. <laughs> Um, I'm guessing it's not <laughs> I'm guessing it's not one banana T.O.O. banana question mark. Um, the. Uh, so no, it is not the okay. So okay, there's there's a uh, someone has a banana full body banana costume that's too similar to another banana costume. Um, mm-hmm. Is it something with like this is happen, happening legally? I would I just want right. I know is it some sort of like s- s- banana split banana? Um, uh, it's not like a banana yellow no uh, banana split banana. P.O. banana. Is it like mm. a monkey bit? Oh, wait, are you reacting to banana P.O.? Oh, 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 oh. Mm. Um, uh, something appeals. Uh, appeals Ooh. court. Ooh. 
Um, mm-hmm. Flip it around, flip it around. The Court of oh, Court of Appeals. Court of Appeal. <laughs> court of Appeal. Oh, I like By the way, it. The Guardian then tried to do just do a little too much, so it's actually Court of Appeal colon. Nasty split over banana costume leads to legal monkey business. <laughs> we really didn't need the last part. Just, just, uh, like we did it. it. Declare victory and go home. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. Reminder, we're back Thursday night, late night, with a Democratic debate reaction pod that will naturally contain lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. David, there's nothing uncooked about me. To write about me is nothing like it is to be with me. What? Wait a second. Never had a persona. Never needed one. Never will. Do I? Uh-huh. So don't call yourself a fan like you did in the article, and don't count your editor one either. Ooh, ooh. Hmm? Wow. Definitely. Definitely.